0: Perhaps I was talking when I should have been listening. No matter what happens, you've got to hang on. Johnny, relax. Now you give him everything he wants, you understand? Now let's see what happens when we mix these two elements together. You are now listening to the Relentless College Entrepreneur Podcast. This is Season 5, Episode 8, and we're talking about the book, The Right of a Lifetime by Robert Iger. Robert Iger was the CEO of Disney for 15 years. And the utter wisdom and knowledge and experience that Iger got from being in a Fortune 500 company and working it way, its way to the top, when there was a lot of times when there was big obstacles to come his way, was significant. And to figure out what I think is really important is the biographies of successful people. And I've been told that in many books because it teaches you what they did and like where they started and their life experience because they're all different. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Robert Iger, Bill Gates, list goes on of successful people and what they did to gain that success and it's always interesting seeing from different perspectives and different lenses how the ceos or successful people grew up and how it all came together so starting off into the book the first thing i realized is that that he had a pretty good childhood growing up he wasn't in a like a a huge family uh, that were like multimillionaires millionaires or well-known. And it just so happened that his father that was in the U.S. Navy and he was in the actual Second World War was a super difficult person that taught him a lot growing up. And now not all of us have, you know, the dad, mom or family or friends that are really going to push you and you learn a whole lot from them and the discipline that they give you. But this was his path and his father taught him a lot. So his father was a huge person in his life and a little bit later in life, Iger, the CEO of Disney learned that he had been diagnosed with manic depression. So there was another obstacle that Iger had, was the depression in of itself that he had and he had to deal with. And it was just another obstacle in his life that he had to surpass. And his dad was a really vivid leader and reader, and he taught Iger really what it meant to learn, gain wisdom, and all this other things that had life teachings in his life. And there was a lucky break for Iger that gave him his start in the TV business. And it was when a family member was undergoing surgery that when he went to visit his family member that the person in the bed next door was a low executive in ABC, I believe, yeah, ABC, which is the American Broadcasting Company, a majority of us, if I had to guess, know what ABC is. It was a huge TV network. And this guy in the bed next door was a low-level executive, like I said, and he talked to him. He talked to Iger, and Iger talked to him, and he was like, he ended up getting a shot at a job for ABC, and he started his job, and It really worked out and the paid position was 150 a week and it wasn't this glamorous TV industry type of thing back in the day when he got the role and Iger's role was simple show up wherever he was needed and do whatever was needed to do and that meant getting up at 4.30am to arrange sets, coordinate carpenters and electricians and run small errands. And there was a cool little story from uh, Frank Sinatra and there was a concert that he was helping and he was one evening helping Frank Sinatra and he was like buying him mouthwash and running errands and stuff like that. And then Sinatra gave him a hundred dollar bill and a golden lighter. So. The significance and why I say that is because there's these little gestures and little things that happen within your purpose that you find and it validates what you're doing is like you really love and that was a really unique story that Iger carried throughout his entire life that Frank Sinatra gave him a hundred dollar bill and a golden cigarette lighter because he ran a couple errands for him. and. He figured out, Iger, that there was other benefits to the job too. That he would meet with top level studio operation supervisors, and he was in a really prof- profitable division. And ABC Sports, which is what he ended up kind of moving to, was unlike any other department that he's ever been in because his new co workers were like in all Gucci and like they surrounded themselves with celebrities and athletes. So it was really bougie type of lifestyle within this department. And during his time with the division, Iger crossed many different things and dined in Paris and drove sports cars in Monaco. So he learned so much within the industry. And I think what was interesting is that he never really changed himself and he wasn't necessarily, you know, balling out, Except that ABC Sports would pay for different, various things, you know, like driving, like I just said, in Monaco, really nice sports cars and stuff like that. He stayed. He stayed the same, and he it really didn't change him. And when Iger was thirty-four years old, to fast forward, he became the vice president of ABC Sports, and this would really repeat in his career. He just ended up going up, and it was major changes in life that happened when he got promoted to bigger positions so to say and he a small company called capital cities communications cap cities for short really it was bought bought the network for 3.5 billion dollars and the new owner immediately stripped away the perks previously enjoyed by the abc sports employees And a lot of things were disappearing. and It wasn't as luxurious. And this didn't really concern Iger, though. What did concern him was the fact that a new guy, an outsider, was becoming the head of his department. And he told and announced that he was going to be quitting. And the president of the company, Dan Burke, told him to just hang around, stick it out. And he was going to be made a senior vice president of programming so there's many points in your career that you're going to have reflection points in your life or decisions that make a huge change. And for Iger, this was one of them. And he decided to stay at ABC. And he said this was the best call he's ever made in his life. And his new boss that he wasn't really admiring at first was awesome. He actually ended up loving his new boss. And he was happy with the way that his boss let him be free and do whatever he wanted that was ethical and was within budget. So he could do and be independent on his own. So Iger thrived in this environment and he was going through the, like doing a bunch of different projects and he was doing really well. And there was. Many different things that happened, and there were definitely a downfall where ABC was starting to head towards. And so Iger had to come up with a new coverage, so to say. And what really ended up happening was Winter Olympics in Canada, and for that's what they ended up uh, hosting. And for the first day, it it just went wrong just from the get-go everything seemed to be going wrong and there was weather conditions and the ski courses were becoming uh, melted so it was just a huge disaster and instead of canceling the Olympic events The viewers across America learned that Jamaican bobsledding team and people like Eddie the Eagle, Edward, which was a huge uh, British ski jumper, had finished last in every event he entered. So somehow it worked, and the ratings were historically high. So what was um, Iger's reward? It was the presidency of ABC's entire entertainment division so he grew within what just happened and I know it was a little confusing maybe what I just said because I was crossing some words but basically there was a lot of wrongs that were happening within this Olympic event that ABC Sports was programming and then all of a sudden it ended up being good because it was so bad some things happened so bad like that uh, a lot of popular people finishing last that it ended up bringing a lot of people to the network to watch what was going on because people were interested in what was going on. So another main topic is taking a chance on a Colts filmmaker TV show helped cement Iger's reputation. So Iger had this work cut out for him when he got his new position in Los Angeles as a president of ABC Entertainment. His first task was to decide on the lineup for the seasons 1989 through 1990, one year, that whole season. And ABC still had a couple of popular shows to its name, but they were rapidly losing viewers to the rivals NBC. And what ABC really needed was a hit. So as Iger saw it, leadership is all about humility. Few things, after all, are less confident, inspiring than a leader faking knowledge. So he stayed true to that word. I'm going to restate that again. Less confidence inspiring than a leader who is faking knowledge. So he said, it's okay to be humiliated. And that's what happened a lot of times in his life. But it was the flip side to that. That is you are also the actual lead so you don't fake knowledge and you accept the humility so how do you square that circle so to say well you ask questions you need to ask get yourself up to speed and then find the courage to make tough calls to find you know that new hit that we were talking about and there was a media landscape that was changing and if ABC wanted to keep up with competition from like the newer cable channels that were coming out and video games and VCR, it needed to grab viewers' attention. Like we said, it needed a big hit. And it was one of the things that changed the most was when ABC piloted an episode of Twin Peaks, which was on April 8th, 1990, with 35 million viewers turned in to hear what was going on with the show and it was one of ABC's most successful shows in years and unfortunately it didn't last. The season kind of unfolded and the, the plot didn't go as well and p- viewers just gradually lost interest so it started to take a down downturn but in the long run however that didn't matter it by taking such a risky gamble of piloting a new show to try to gain new viewers Iger had caught the attention of the media in Hollywood so he started getting many different calls from very famous people uh, that are filmmakers about future projects that they were looking for so although in the short term it was a failure because it did really well and it brought viewers but then it started to gradually decrease with the viewers it ended up bringing him and ABC Entertainment a lot more success in the future. So what I learned from this is you can't always view short-term as bad because short-term problems sometimes become long-term solutions. Wow, that really stuck with me, uh, what I just said. And, And just thinking about that, you know, maybe a problem today unfolding is your solution in the long run and you don't even realize it. And this was a career-defining moment for Iger and was really complimented and cemented his reputation, so to say. And despite his personal success, Iger for the first years with Disney were a low point in his career. So that's the topic that we're going to be jumping into right now. And Iger's boldness didn't go unnoticed within ABC and in September 1994 he was promoted to COO or Chief Operating Officer and it was a huge achievement for him and six months later Disney CEO Michael Eisner began inquiring if the corporation was for sale so then fast forward 1996 the two companies merged in a deal that was worth 19.5 billion that's a lot of money and in the mid 90s through this however the entertainment giant was in trouble so disney was in trouble and disney was also looking for a way to gain viewers and do things because right now looking at disney we can all see that it's super successful which i think is really interesting because how did disney become successful and this is really what this podcast is emerging emerging out of the the deep down surface on how disney came disney plus and you know all these hit shows the incredibles uh toy story cars all these movies that we watched as kids or grown-ups whatever it may have been everyone knows what disney is and they were pretty big but in the mid 90s they they weren't doing too well at all and disney's famous animation unit had been lost it's it, which was its creative spark and its recent movies have been expensive flops and there's a whole documentary on Disney and Pixar's upbringing which is a really interesting one I will leave that down in the bio so you, you all can check it out I believe it's on Netflix I forget the name but I'll research it after and make sure that I put it in the description very interesting to watch because Disney was having trouble in this mist and this is how Aigner helped so to say so Disney acquired ABC's assets that were like the cable sports channel, ESPN, and it gave Eisner, which was the CEO at the time, a breathing room as Disney tried to rediscover its flow, so to say. And looking back, Eigner regards the first years of his new position were unproductive and he didn't really like it. And that was largely due to Disney's culprit culture. And it wasn't like his old boss where he would just give him freedom, a budget. It was completely different. It was the opposite side. Disney was completely different in that aspect. And you were given a budget and you were told what to do. You didn't have independence. And there eventually was some personal issues within Eigner's problem. So Eisner, which is his first name, uh, the CEO of Disney at the time was had a problem. And it was that his friend died, Frank Wells in a helicopter crash in 1994. And the position that his friend held Frank Wells was left vacant until the merge between ABC and Disney combined. And the founder of Of and they hired the founder of the top Hollywood talent agency CAA and it was Michael Ovitz. Ovitz was a gifted agent but it was told in the book that he was a poor manager and he had a reputation for like taking calls and meetings and failed to read reports be caught up and he really showed his boredom and he didn't really like his job so that was the problem with hiring Michael Ovitz. And it became that he was very negative, and it was a big lesson to Eigner because leading means being attentive and sitting through meetings you wouldn't if you had the choice not to, and solving people's problems. So within someone else, Eigner developed this sense of knowledge that he wasn't going to be that person, and it taught him a huge thing which would help him in his career to come. And he was already really successful, but there's a a longer road to hit that we're going to get on. And so in the midst of merging, it started to become a little bit better, but Eichner felt like he wasn't being productive like we talked in the last main point, so he thought he was going to get fired, and that was – a big, big thing that was going to happen, and the day came, he got called in, and he went in, and he he knew what was going to happen. He was going to get fired from Disney, and it actually didn't end up happening. And actually, in fact, he was promoted to COO and was giving a, given a seat on Disney board of directors. So. Clearly, Iger's consistent work and hard grit work had changed Eisner's mind, the CEO of Disney. It changed his mind in the sense that he was originally going to fire him because they didn't really work together all too well. Again, with that culprit culture type of thing, it just wasn't Eisner's type of working format. And he got promoted. And Eisner realized, again, the CEO of Disney, that he was putting in the work and he was a huge asset to the company. And then put into the mix Steve Jobs and he was a huge holder in um, Pixar, Uh, actually he was the CEO of Pixar at the time. So he already, Steve Jobs to catch you up already had like success, you know, the, the, the Macintosh and I think he was coming out with the iPhone, not the iPhone because this was early in the time but Macintosh and it gave him a lot of money so Jobs eventually became the CEO of Pixar, which was the animation studio of Disney. So that's where we see the Toy Story, the cars, movie, uh, all the animation that we've seen growing up from Disney came up from Pixar, and that was their, so to say, lab for developing all these movies. And in the midst of this, in the mid-'90s, Toy Story, the full, which was the first full-length uh, animated film, It released in 1995 and it was a hit and grossed over 400 million dollars worldwide. And then in 98 A Bug's Life and then in 2001 Monsters Incorporated brought in an additional 600 million dollars. So that's one billion billion, dollars in five years which is insane for the company because they weren't doing that well. And th- there was a huge tension between Disney and Pixar because they were two separate companies, kind of, but they were merged together. And it amounted to the developing of Toy Story 2, which we know and I personally think wasn't the best Toy Story. It just wasn't that interesting. And the original idea had released in straight, straight to video, but the cost just racked up, and it was decided to show in theaters – and what's the sticking point, you might be thinking? Well, Jobs argue it should be counted towards Disney's five-movie commitment, and Eisner claimed it shouldn't since it was a sequel. So they developed, I'm not going to get into a whole story, but Eisner, CEO of Disney, and Steve Jobs, the CEO of Pixar, that were merged together and worked together, just didn't work well together. And they were constantly arguing. It really started to separate the company, and this is where we saw like a, a A big problem within Disney and Pixar that was going to go down a a steady slope and if it hadn't changed Disney probably wouldn't be here today honest truth and as things got worse September 11th happened you might be thinking how is this relevant to all this and it was the fact that the stock market tumbled and it forced Disney's largest uh, shareholder the base family uh, to dump 135 million dollars, I mean, sorry, 135 million shares, which was worth $2 billion. And this was a sharp downturn in global tourism, so Disney's theme park wasn't making much res- revenue as well. And so this is when the big problem started happening. There was tension between Pixar, Disney, and a huge stakeholder within Disney just sold $2 billion worth of Sh- um, shares which ended up just straight nose diving the stock and it, so it was really 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 bad point and a few weeks later disney's shareholders revolted because there was the crisis and Eis- eisner started panicking. So the current CEO, that made the many bad calls that Eisner made. And despite the squeeze as m- to make as much money as possible out of Disney with Pixar, he refused to compromise with jobs to come up with new negotiate deals, which just ended up in more tension. And it was really that there was little that people liked about Eisner and that he just was super stubborn and in the early 2004 he publicized that he would never work for Disney again. Now talk about this is like straight down and Disney's at the bottom right now. It's not going well at all. The CEO is announcing that he's never going to be working for Disney again. Uh, Stock has plummeted. The movies aren't doing so well. The tension between jobs and Disney, Pixar and Disney, it just downturned. Bottom, bottom, bottom. But we got a secret recipe coming up. Eisner. Not Eisner. Iger. So when, as I was saying, the Disney shareholders revolted, 43% of them, withheld their support for Eisner so really wasn't going well and then now the question that arised was who was going to take that position to so to say make sure Disney was successful in the future so going down the line ended up there was a lot of problems like we stated and there's a lot of things that were going wrong and a CEO role is to provide a, a roadmap basically, and to ensure the company's success and make sure that it's being withheld to all the priorities and making sure that it's gonna be successful. So when you tell people where you are now, where you wanna be, and how you're going to get there, you give them reference points to help them frame their decisions. So put differently, you take the guesswork out of their day-to-day lives. And Miller, so another person that was kind of coming in, so it was a Los Angeles-based political consultant and brand manager, so it was Scott, Scott Miller, I know it might be a little confusing, which was an old contact from Iger's time at ABC. So Miller would go on really to help Iger within his strategy planning. And after he met with Miller, Iger landed on three strategy priorities for Disney. And this is what he was going to have to pitch to the board and shareholders. First off within this strategy plan that Iger came up with was that Disney needed to devote more of its time and capital to creating memorable movies and characters. And anything less, Iger argued, just Wasn't going to cut it and in today's market customers face a Dizziness and or like just confusingness of Number of things to watch and their choices that they can pick so great Branded content helps them decide how to spend their precious time and money and who to come for when looking to watch a show or a movie So they needed to focus their time on making more movies and good characters. And then another thing within his three strategy plan was Disney need to embrace cutting edge technology. This meant both leveraging technology to create new products and using to dispute those products. So there was many things coming up. They knew that they had to start to innovate and adapt to change. which was that they were at the bottom and it wasn't going well. They had to make a significant change. And then the third thing that Eigner came up with with Miller that was helping him was that Disney needed to become a truly global company, which meant tapping into India and China. So they needed to expand. And then in March 2005, Disney's board convinced to make its decision. That afternoon, Eigner received a call. The job of CEO was now his. So Steve Jobs was one of the first people Eigner called as Disney CEO. He wanted to repair that bridge that kind of fell, so to say. So he really wanted to embrace the relationship between the two. And Job was really frosty, and the deal he had offered Eigner was corresponding to one side. In return for getting away from the sequel uh, rights from Disney and Pixar's collaborations, Disney would have to receive 10% stake in Pixar. And that was just unacceptable. But Iger had another idea. Buying Pixar completely. The board wasn't convinced. So Pixar was valued at $6 billion and Jobs, who loved Loved Disney, owned half their stocks. He owned half Disney, basically. Even if Disney was to put up that type of money, it was going to be very hard to get Steve Jobs to sell all those. And Eigner, however, was convinced that it, this was the only way forward. In short, Disney's animation studio was a mess. That was another thing. And the numbers reflected that. There was no question. Over those 10 years, Disney had invested $1 billion in new movies and lost $400 million while Pixar had been racking up success after success. So Iger wanted to pitch Jobs an idea. And Iger was kind of scared because he was like, well, you know, Steve Jobs. I mean, he's not always agreeable and he's a pretty harsh guy. So... Don't know how this is going to go. He wanted to meet with him personally. And then Jobs was like, nope, just tell me now. I want to hear about it. And then Eigner just really thought he was going to be laughed away, basically. And then Eigner told Steve Jobs, silence. And then after that, what seemed like a huge pause, Jobs gave him the answer after his pitch. Steve Jobs said, you know, that's not the craziest idea in the world. So, to make sure what you all know about catching up and like, I don't want it to be confusing, within this pitch, it was to buy Pixar. So, it was really hard, and Disney ended up buying Pixar for $6.4 billion, which would give their top creators freedom and independence, and in return, would receive the rights to Pixar's output technology and know-how of everything basically and this would be the base in which disney's own animation studio would build as to reinvent itself so to say the results speaking for itself really the results 100 percent, because disney uh disney released toy story 3 and toy story 4 ratatouille the incredibles disney pixar had made some of the highest grossing family movies in the last 15 years. 15 years. And then there was a whole thing that happened and I'm not going to get, I'm, I'm noticing the podcast is starting to become a little bit longer so I don't want to get super in-depth. We're heading toward the end. So then Disney knew that it would have to keep on going with this high quality content and it's like, What was going to make this high-quality content keep on going? And Marvel had struggled financially for years and was sitting on a huge amount of comic books and characters that Eigner and the Disney company thought were well-suited within and would suit really well within their movies and TV and theme park and merchandise operations. So another problem across the road, Mike Pulmiter which was owned a huge, huge stake of Marvel, was going to be hard to convince because he was ex-military and he was really tough and he was known as this legendary guy that it was really hard to make a deal with him. And if you did make a deal with him, it was most likely not going to go in your way. But luckily, Eigner leveraged this when he wanted to approach uh, the Marvel and, and buy him out was the fact that he had steep jobs. And Steve Jobs was loved and was surrounded by more than video games. It was comics, and he loved it, and he had personal feelings aside and agreed to help Eigner because he loved Marvel. On August 31st, 2009, Disney announced that it was buying Marvel for over $4 billion. So this really was another big jump for Disney and it was a successful jump that they made but it wasn't a successful jump right off the bat because there was many things going wrong in Marvel they weren't doing the best and they like sold their rights to Columbia Pictures while Fox owned X-Men and the Incredible Hulk so there was many other things but Eigner do- did his homework and Disney argued, Disney, he argued, didn't need these household names. Marvel had more than enough compelling stories in its back pocket that would end up making great movies. And he wasn't wrong, Eigner wasn't. And in April 2019, Disney released its 20th Marvel movie, The Avengers Endgame. And it was a hit that grew $2 billion in box office receipts. So really, on average, Disney's Marvel Productions had averaged to gross $1 billion each. And so we all remember Endgame and Avengers and how amazing it was. So all this stuff releasing and all this, it was these big jumps Eigner made in order to make Disney successful again and grow to be on top. So Disney's future rests on the success of innovating and coming up with new ideas but its secret sauce was Eigner and Eigner becoming the CEO and having all these learning and teachings over life so if what we really take from it is that you know all these little things eventually add up he got a he got a small job at tv show and then it built up into like this huge thing and he learned a lot along the way he didn't become CEO overnight at Disney it took a lot of things to to really get him to where he's at so the last point I want to make before we jump into the summary I know this is a longer podcast but very interesting book was that Eigner had a great mentor and he had taught him if you don't innovate you die so Eigner knew this and he saw platforms and streaming services were becoming up front in front of everyone now and it was really going to be the future so Disney had to get action but From the streaming services but how and there was many choices they could buy a platform or create one and the second option was really quickly discarded because creating one would take many years and a huge investment that wouldn't necessarily guarantee a great ROI or rate on investment so buying one in contrast, was expensive, but allowed Disney to pivot into new markets immediately. And so huge, huge companies like Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook were really off the table because Disney couldn't afford them. It, and Disney, if they immerse themselves in such a big player, it might have not gone that well. So they had a, a couple small alternatives that ended up helping them. And Disney bought one of those small alternatives Alternatives, which was BAM Tech Media, it was a baseball streaming service that had custom-designed platforms for HBO, which was to host the season Game of Thrones, and then Disney paid one billion dollars for a thirty-three percent stake in BAM Tech, so this streaming service that they were gonna try to get on and then like make it into theirs. And today, up until today, it's actually expanded that Disney owns seventy-five percent stake and. What was Eigner's plan? In a word, it was really innovation to make sure that they had and Disney had to only road of success to go on. And in short term, it'd be hugely disruptive because it would be pulling off all of its movies from its streaming services, Netflix, Disney, and Essentially forfeiting hundreds of millions of dollars in annual licensing fees. So in the long run, though, however, it ended up being the re-innovating Disney and making it a whole lot better and really brings us to what Disney is today. And There was a whole lot of content to go around. Disney had many movies, so they didn't have a lacking of different things. But on March of 2019, Eigner pulled off another deal, and it was to merge with 21st Century Fox worth around $52 billion, not a slight money. And that means that Disney now owned the rights not only to Marvel and Pixar content, but some of Fox's very luxurious franchises like x-men and fantastic four as well as uh, distribution rights to star wars so disney's platform profitability and cultural revel- relevance had never looked more assuring and that's what really brings us today and this was like the whole thing of Eigner, and like this whole thing leading up there's so many teachings that we can learn from this so the summary of this is that Robert Eigner got his start in the media industry after taking a chance when he encountered someone at the hospital, and this led to a job, and then he ganged up and went up in the network and became like CEO, and C- I mean COO, and he had made a name for himself while working at ABC's network uh, in the sports division, and then eventually was CEO, and then became CEO of ABC uh, Entertainment, and his decision helped boost the company's ratings and attract more attention to Hollywood, and then thus got taken over by Disney, and then he became Disney's COO, Chief Operating Officer, in 2005, and then in 2006, the CEO of Disney, his leadership has been defined by a series of bold acquisition and mergers that helped him secure Disney's place in the world of entertainment. He really defined taking these big risks and then ended up being high rewards and putting a lot on the table that he could lose. So the takeaway really is that don't be afraid of risks and we can learn so much in between all of this stuff. I know this was a longer podcast, and something I want to say, not at the end and wrapping up the podcast, is that I know I was going to say that we're going to have more guests on, but I really enjoy doing book reviews and giving the audience knowledge because it reestablishes knowledge in me, and it's been a very tough to because normally when I get guests, uh, guests, it has to be planned a, ahead of time, like a couple weeks, and as we're approaching the deadline of the the podcast, it's really came up in my mind that maybe. You know, guests aren't going to be the best because I want to give out as much information that I've learned from these books. And really, having a guest on the show is another voice, absolutely. But at the same time, reviewing and summarizing books is like having this person like Robert Iger. The CEO of Disney for 15 years and really made what Disney is today on the podcast in a way. So, really having guests, and I, I'm still working towards it. I'm working things out to get more guests on the show before we wrap up this podcast. But I just wanted to say that. And another thing, go ahead and follow my Instagram account. There'll be a link in the, the description. And I know some people might be thinking, Hunter, the quality wasn't the best. Like you said, um, uh, uh there's some pauses, but something that I learned that I want to leave you all with is that Gary V taught me, he was like, make it organic, make your content organic, that you mess up, that you're not perfect because if it's perfect, everyone's going to think like that's how it should be. But in reality, nothing's perfect and you should let your flaws show and become vulnerable so I, I'm, t- I'm really taking that on with this episode because it's longer i had my pauses there was a lot of information to go over within this amazing book so i just wanted to establish that with that being said i hope you have an amazing rest of your day and we'll be queuing the outro this has been the relentless college entrepreneur podcast catch you guys next time